what's this? A bonus episode. Merry Christmas to everyone from Evidence for Faith, from Michael, Denise, and I. We are so glad that you've been with us through these last almost eight months now <laughs> since we've started in last April, and we decided we'd give you a little bonus episode on the podcast today. We actually recorded this uh, episode a little bit last minute because Michael did this presentation at a ladies' tea. Um, they want to know about Christmas archaeology, and it was so popular, everyone asked us to put it on the podcast. So Merry Christmas. Christmas archaeology is now on the podcast. There is also a video version of this lesson because this lesson is also very heavy on pictures. So if you'd rather jump over to our YouTube channel or to Facebook to go watch the video and enjoy that, that is also an option. As always, this program is made possible by listeners just like you. If you'd like to help support this broadcast and keep it free, you can donate at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And here is Michael Lane in Christmas Archaeology. Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. Hey, I have a little Christmas special for you today. It's Christmas season, and I have a, a wonderful little, little journey for you. This is going to be the journey of Christmas. And I, I don't know if you've ever been to Israel. I've been to Israel a number of times because I've helped um, and co-led trips there uh, with Dr. Stephen Notley. And we're hoping to do another trip here coming up in about a year. But um, if you've never been to Israel and you, you're sort of limited to what your Christmas experience is with what television gives you. Now, I know there's a series called The Chosen. People really love that. And there's the old movie King of Kings. And there's been so many other movies, uh, Jesus of Nazareth and stuff, and, they, and, and Christmas specials that show the, the Christmas story, at least part of the Christmas story. But a lot of this is not quite right. Matter of fact, I bet many of you have a little um, manger scene in your house or maybe in your front yard. Um, well, I'm going to sort of show you what, what was really probably the, the uh, Christmas story of where these things took place. We're going to take the Christmas story. And as best as I can do with you just using uh, um, your computer, we're going to take a trip to Israel and actually look at the places of Christmas. We're going to explore the Christmas story, the journey, and where it took place, what was all taking place there. So that's what this lesson's about. So it's a nice little Christmas lesson. Maybe you want to listen to it with your family on Christmas Day or whatever. But I would love for you to, to just sit back, relax, and Sort of uh, think of pomegranates and, and think of uh, hummus and, and other things as we explore this little story that everybody knows so well, but we often get sort of incorrect on movies and stuff of the journey. Also in this, I got a challenge for you at the end. So this is going to be a really interesting thing that might help you in your spiritual life also. It might really clear up some things too. So you ready to take a journey with me to Israel? And to see this place, uh, the, the places of Christmas, well, let's begin. So our story is going to start off. We're going to go with starting in Luke chapter 2. Now, there's two Gospels that talk about the Christmas story. There's Matthew and there is Luke. Now, Luke is the one most people are most familiar with because of the Charlie Brown special. Um, you know, Charlie Brown's Christmas. I love that. That is such a cool thing when Linus gets up on the stage and, and recites the Christmas story. But there's also parts of the Christmas story that are found in uh, the second chapter of the of, um, uh, book of Matthew. Matthew talks about the birth of the king of kings. And so we're going to see parts of these back and forth. But we're going to start with the story um, as it began in Luke. And we're going to start off at Luke chapter 2, verse 26 and 27. So here we start with the Christmas story. And we read, and again, I'm out of the English Standard Version here, word-for-word -word translation as we go through this. You're going to see it says, and it reads this way, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, not too uh, shattering of, of facts here for a lot of people. Most people know this, that the, the story actually does begin not in Bethlehem. It starts in Galilee. What's interesting is it ends back, uh, ends up in Galilee again after Jesus is born. He's um, a few years older. He's back in Galilee. But it starts here 
And as it said in that passage, it says that Gabriel, who's just an angel, and um, he's coming and talking to um, to both, he's going to be spending some time with Mary. In this case here, he's sent to the Virgin Mary. Now, some people will say, well, wait a minute, it's not a you know virgin, isn't it? So my translation that I use maybe says young woman. Well, it goes back to a prophecy in Isaiah, and we have a, a thing on the prophecies of Christmas. You can uh, pull that up on your website and, and look at that where I explain that in greater detail. But it's coming, uh, angel is coming to Mary, and it says that she's a virgin. So this is going to be a supernatural event. And so she has to be a virgin for this to be a supernatural event. And she is betrothed to Joseph. Now, they have not consummated their marriage at this point. Um, in that culture, that's how this was done. Um, they are betrothed to each other, but they have not consummated the wedding. Now, the thing is, it says that Joseph is of the house of David. So he's a descendant of David from David's son, Solomon. And you see his genealogy. If you look in Matthew's gospel, chapter one, you get the genealogy there having to do with Joseph. Mary, though, is also a descendant of David from his son, Nathan. So in Luke chapter three, you have Mary's genealogy, which is um, showing her genealogy. That's why they're slightly different, if you've ever wondered that. But anyway, both of them, and here's the key thing, both of them are from the descendancy of David. David is their ancestor on both sides of the family. Now, David lived, if you remember the Old Testament stories with David, he spent time around Bethlehem, and that's where he was at. So he lived in Bethlehem. But um, we're going to go to Bethlehem because that's where they're going to be going. Um, and the reason why, I'll explain in a second. But let's take a look, first of all, where in the world is Nazareth? Good question. It's a really fascinating city today. It's a huge metropolis. It's, it's very large and even getting bigger. Um, every year, uh, more people moving in there. It's, it's a large place. It's up in the northern part of Israel. So here is a map showing Israel. And um, over in the left-hand corner, you can see the, the country of Israel. And then there's a reddish square um, that is enlarged, and that's the background of the picture. Now, as you're looking at this, there's a body of water you can see called the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is, is it, what it is, it's just a big freshwater lake. You can stand on any one of the banks and see the other side. It's, it's just a big freshwater lake, though we call it the Sea of Galilee. It's got other names too. Now, from the Sea of Galilee, um, you'll notice that Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains, pretty much. To the north, to the south, uh, to the west, to the east, a lot of mountains. And if you go to the south, there's a river valley. That's where the Jordan River comes through and runs down to the Dead Sea. But where is Nazareth? Go from like the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee and move to the west. Go to the left and you'll see a city called Nazareth sitting in a mountain range. You notice how this is a, a topographical map showing you the physical features. Nazareth sits in a mountain range. So it's high up on a mountain and there's, there's cliffs there. There's also um, many caves in this area. It's a mountainous area and this is where it takes place. This is where um, Mary and Joseph are living at the beginning of the Christmas story in this town. Now, why are they there? is an interesting question, too, that I'm often asked. Why was, why was Nazareth so important? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, if you recall, Joseph is a carpenter. Jesus is a carpenter also, but Joseph is a carpenter at this point, and Jesus hasn't been born yet. So Joseph is there in Nazareth, and if you look just where, on, again, on the map, look a little bit north of Nazareth, you'll see Gath Heifer. Um, Gath Heifer is the area from where the prophet Jonah comes from, but just a little bit further north, you'll notice the city of Sepphoris. Now, that's a Roman city, and it was being constructed at this time of the Christmas story. They were building this thing up and um, making it a massive city, theaters and temples and everything, as a Roman city would be, uh, a, a polis there. And so, who builds these cities? Who, who builds stuff? Carpenters. Now, today, we are under the impression, we always, always think of carpenters being associated with wood, like building wooden frames and wooden houses and buildings and stuff like that working with wood. But in ancient times, at the time of the first century, carpenters primarily worked with stone. Most buildings were made of stone. Yes, they worked with some with wood. They would make furniture and stuff, but they also worked with stone, carving stones. And since the Romans are building this huge mega city right there, uh, Sepphoris, just north of, of Nazareth, and that's walking distance. That's just a short distance in walking, um, just a couple of miles, and you're, you're, uh, you can leave from one city to go to the other one. So Joseph most likely was finding employment at Sepphoris. We don't know this for sure. It doesn't say that in scripture. It just makes logical sense. 
He's a carpenter. Nazareth is a puny little, hardly anything, uh, little village where you got this Roman city being built. And so this is um, a place for carpenters to make money. There'd be a lot of carpenters because the Romans are building a lot of stuff. But that's where this is taking place. So that's part of the reason that we see this. Now, I'm showing you a picture now of Nazareth. I am at where this picture is, I took this photograph, is in the Roman city, Sepphoris. And what you're seeing in the background on these uh, large hills is that's a mountain range. And what you're seeing is the modern city of Nazareth up there. In between, we have a little valley right here. You can see some olive trees and others. But there's a major metropolis up there, and that is the, where Nazareth sat. Now, in ancient times, it was not nearly that big. It was just a small little village. Very tiny, very, very tiny. And that's where Mary and Joseph were living, in just this little village area. And like I say, Joseph was probably finding employment where I'm standing here in, in building part of this Roman city. But you'll notice it's up on top of a mountain. So it's sitting up on top of a mountain. This fits with what scripture tells us later on, because at one time they're going to, uh, they get upset with Jesus when he goes back there and is teaching in the synagogue. They want to push him off a cliff. There is a cliff there. This all fits the geography um, of what is described in the Bible, this place, Nazareth. So this is Nazareth. Now, some critics have, have actually said to me, Nazareth didn't exist. There's no mention of Nazareth in the Old Testament. So Nazareth didn't exist at the time of this Mary and Joseph Christmas story. Well, that is totally incorrect because archaeologists digging in this area and digging in these caves and stuff around on top of the mountain, they have found Hebrew pottery. They're dating back over 4,000 years ago. So there were Hebrew people, not many because it's a small little rinky-dink little place, but there was Hebrew people living there even from the Old Testament times. It just probably wasn't called Nazareth, or if it was, it's just not recorded. But people were definitely living in this area. And pieces of pottery, pottery tells us a lot. By looking at pottery, we can see uh, and tell a lot of the culture, um, what culture made it, even the time frame of when it was done. Now, Nazareth was decreed, this is the second part to why Nazareth, it was decreed to be the home of the Messiah 700 years prior to the Christmas story. 700 years before, God gave to the prophet Isaiah a message that he wrote down in his book that the Messiah would be living in Nazareth. So, very important prophecy. I mean, uh, this, this is a major one, that it talks about Galilee, that he would be of Galilee. And how many times we hear, you know, Jesus of Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth. He did grow up there, as so we'll talk about that later. But here's the prophecy out of Isaiah. Now, God is speaking, and he's talking about some bad times and stuff like this that are going on primarily because of sin. So in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we read, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Who's, uh, those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, this deep darkness, on them has the light shined. Now, what is the darkness it's talking about? Sin and corruption and stuff. So people who have been in corruption and living in corruption are going to see a great light. Well, what's the great light? Jesus is the great light. He's often called, and he himself called himself the light of the world. He is the light. This is a prophecy talking about the coming Messiah that the Messiah is coming. And where's the Messiah going to be coming from? It's not talking about his birthplace, but it is talking about where people are going to start to see the, uh, the light of the world. And it's in, as it says, in Galilee. And it specifically mentions two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. So what does that mean? Well, if you'll go back into the Old Testament, um, Jacob had 12 sons, and then when you get to the book of Joshua, the, the Exodus takes place. They, they are moving into the promised land under Joshua, and they are allotted. The different tribes, uh, the sons of, of Jacob, are given certain aspects of land. And two of his sons, Zebulun and Naphtali, are given land way up into the northern kingdom where Galilee is located. And so it's up in Galilee. Let me show you a map here. So here is a map showing of the 12 tribes in different colors. Now, I have put just a little bit above center in the middle. You will find a red dot, and that's where Nazareth sits. Notice it's in the tribe of Zebulun, which is right next to the land, uh, the tribe of Naphtali. 
So what Isaiah wrote almost 700 years before the event ever took place came true perfectly because in Galilee, that whole area up there around the Sea of Galilee, that is called Galilee, in Galilee, where the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali are, they made up part of Galilee, and the city of Nazareth is right there. And the people who live in darkness are going to see a great light. The light, of course, is Jesus. And that's where you find this. And so that's where the story starts off in this whole thing. Now, Nazareth is located, again, on a very rocky protuberance. It's, it's a rocky mountain area. And with, it has small little caves all over the place. There are many, many caves up in here. As there are caves, if you're not aware of this, Israel is full of caves. I mean, there are thousands of caves in this little country. As you go down to the south around the Dead Sea, that's where they have found many of the Dead Sea Scrolls are in these caves. And they keep finding them occasionally, keep finding new discoveries in some of these caves. But just not into the south. Um, there's caves even around Jerusalem, and you go up north into Galilee, there are caves there. Nazareth has natural caves all around, and people lived in these caves. And most likely, Joseph and Mary lived in caves, because the people, the Hebrew people, living at the time of Jesus' birth were definitely cave dwellers. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, Joseph's a caveman? <laughs> yeah, he was. Probably because people lived in caves. Why go out and build? If you're going to build a place of wood, it's going to be very expensive. That takes a lot of money and a lot of time. If you're going to build a, a home, uh, a house and everything for your family out of stone, it's very tedious work to cut the stones, to put them together and make the framework and everything. When there's caves everywhere, caves are a fantastic place to live in. They give you great shelter. They're cooler in the summer. They're warmer in the winter. You can have, and some of these caves go back quite a ways. They carved back into the caves and made rooms and stuff in some of these caves. They were so big. So Mary and Joseph most likely lived in a cave. Now, the thing is, as I said, Nazareth was a tiny, tiny little village. Not many people living there. Uh, probably less than 300 uh, or 400 at the time of, the, of this story taking place in Luke. And they're living there. Now, today, there is a church that has been built called the Basilica of Annunciation. Annunciation, the angel speaking to Mary. The Basilica of the Annunciation is a huge church. It is so large, it sits over what would have been almost the entire ancient village of Nazareth. In other words, underneath this church is the ancient city of Nazareth. And you can go into this church. It's, it's a beautiful church, fantastic artwork. It is huge. You go inside, it's a typical type of church, and it's a functioning church. Then you go down below and you see um, there's, there's different levels and stuff. And I'm showing you a, a, a cutaway plan showing you how big this, this church was or is. It's huge and sits on top of, of the, uh, one of the higher spots in Nazareth on top of the mountain. And underneath this church, the chapel is what's on the right side. And under this chapel, well, there are caves down at the bottom. You go inside the church, you can go down into some of these caves where you could see the Hebrew people were living. And then if you go even further, you go outside this part and go outside that church a little bit, and you can go underneath it again because there's an area of an archaeological dig that's down there. But as we go inside the cave and you look inside there, there's one cave that is sort of stands out among the others. And it's been, now remember, they built a church all around this thing. So part of the cave is, the back part's been carved out and stuff, but the front part of the opening is still there. And it's, the picture I'm showing you here right now is, is part of this cave, and you'll see some red and green all around this. Um, they say, many, many people say that this is the cave that Mary lived in, where the angel appeared to her and stuff like that. Do we know this? No. Gabriel didn't like, Gabriel was here. He didn't do that on a wall. Mary didn't, Mary didn't write her name. Mary lived here. She didn't put her address and had a post office box there. We don't know. Um, there's a bunch of caves that are here and people were living in them. Mary and Joseph are living at this point separate, but they are living in these caves. And the thing is, this is a nice cave. They built it right there. It's a big cave. It's very elaborate. So the church has put a uh, beautiful altar back inside there. They have services and stuff that take place there, as you can see. And that's where they say that this is. Now, we don't know. Maybe it was. We have no idea. We just know that this is the general area. The church basically said, we need to find a place to, um, to build um, a church over the spot where, where Mary lived. 
They didn't know where it was, but they said, well, we know we're in a general area. This is a nice cape. Let's pick this one. I mean, really, that's what it came down to. So that's how they picked this cave. We don't know for certain if that was Mary's. But anyway, Mary and all of them were living in a cave. And you can see this cave right there in the front. Like I say, you go outside the church and you walk underneath it, you can see more archaeological digs. Um, it's still an active dig that goes on around in this area and uh, uh, even around the street next door and stuff. There's a lot of places they're still digging. But underneath this, there's another cave. Here's one. This is a cave underneath that church. Very close to the one we just showed you before, the one that they say Mary's was Mary's. This one is slightly outside. It's just a little bit away. And this one here, you can see these two large pillars in the middle. Now, those pillars are not original. Those pillars were added later because they built a church on top. They don't want this thing to collapse. But this is a typical house that you would have found in Nazareth. And it's got a stairway that goes down. So you're looking actually indoors of a house dating back to the time of Mary and Joseph. Is this where they live? Who knows? We don't have any idea. But is, um, I have been inside this. I've walked around. I have photographed a lot of things in there and studied different things in there. And there's a kitchen area. There's a, a large area for the family to gather. And, and like we would have like a living room or something today. There's even a place in the back where you can tell they must have had a housing for some, some small animals, maybe a couple of sheep or some. There's shelves that are built and cut into the walls. There's other rooms that are cut into this thing. So they took the cave and they sort of modernized it to, in, for ancient time to make it dwellable. And this was a home. This is the type of thing so, uh, that, they, that the people lived in, Mary and Joseph would have lived in. But I want to tell you something that's fascinating. In March of 2017, archaeologists began a major study of another home across the street from the church called the Basilica of Annunciation. This one's at a church that um, is called the Sisters of Nazareth. It's right across the street. You just literally just walk across the road outside of the one church, and you're at this one. And as they have been excavating here, there is some old traditions and writings and stuff stating that this was the actual house that Jesus grew up in after the birth story, after the Christmas story, and they come back to Nazareth, that this is where they live. And if you know from Scripture, it tells us in Mark that Jesus uh, had brothers and he had sisters. And so it was a sizable family. And so they had a good size home. Um, they were very poor people. So they, um, we know that from the Christmas story. When Mary and Joseph go to uh, have Jesus circumcised at the temple, they offer two turtle doves, which was the poor man's offering. So they were very poor at, uh, at point, uh, apparently at this time. But there was a Byzantine church that was built over this house in, in, in cave across the street from the Basilica of Annunciation. And there is evidence to support that this is actually the house that Jesus grew up in. The Byzantines, you see, what they did is they came um, after the Roman Empire became Christianized because of Constantine and his mother Helena went around and started building churches on many historical places. She had the Roman records. Romans kept very precise records on things to try and find out where the certain places were. And then she ordered churches built there. There was a church that was built over this spot here that dates back just a couple hundred years after the birth of Christ. And so that's what this, this is. Now, um, like I say, if you were to go to, across the street and see it, you'd never recognize this as being an archaeological site, but that's what this is. Um, you can stay there. This is a church that people do stay in when they tra uh, travel and visit. It's called the Sisters of Nazareth, um, and you can go inside there. And um, if you get permission, you can go down and take a, uh, take a look. Um, and see the, the digs that are going down here. Here is a picture from 2017 showing you as they were digging and they found this house. Now there's walls, massive walls here. There's a courtyard that's on the right side um, and there, it goes into a cave, but there's also evidence that there was a Byzantine church here. Um, now this has been enclosed over. The picture I just had before it was not. Now it is enclosed over a little bit more, protected, and they're seeing evidence of the Byzantine church here, but they're also seeing evidence that this was a Jewish home at the time of Christ. Just taking that camera and turning around, shooting the opposite direction now, you can see where the cave is. There's a cave here that goes back inside there. Um, now, the wooden box over on the side, that's modern equipment and stuff. That's just sitting there. But there's also evidence there was a Byzantine church here. So, this, uh, some people, many scholars are starting to think, this very well could have been the house that Jesus grew up in. Not 
the Christmas story to begin with, but that they, when they came back to Nazareth, that this is the house they went up in. Well, let's move on in our story. Now that we've seen a little bit here with Nazareth, let's go back to Luke. Now let's pick up um, verses four through seven, a very familiar part of the story um, of the Christmas story. And let's take a look at where this journey goes. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was the house in the lineage of David, he had to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So we know this. Linus tells part of the story in the Charlie Brown Christmas. So we, a lot of people have this memorized beautiful passage. But you'll notice there's a couple of things here. We started off in Galilee, and it says from Nazareth, which is where we just came from. Now we're going to go down to Judea. This is about 85 miles uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It's about 85 miles. And um, why is he going there? Well, it tells us also in Luke uh, chapter 2 as it opens up, a new emperor has come to power. Uh, Octavian, Augustus Caesar, has come to power, and he's going to start building projects all over the all over the empire. He needs money to do this, so he's going to have a census that is taken. So he orders a, sentence, a census to be taken. And now the Jews always, and to this day, many of them still, they keep very careful tracks of their genealogy. So we know that uh, David and Mary, being descendants of David, had to go back to the ancient city of David, Bethlehem, according to this, to be registered there because they're of the royal family. That's where David was from. So they had to go there to get registered. Now, the thing is, they're not the only descendants of David. People who are living in Bethlehem, many of them are probably also descendants of David. So as they're coming down, um, there's people traveling all over the empire at this point. And the Jews, who really didn't like the Romans doing this census because they knew they are going to get taxed and stuff for this, they probably put this census off as long as possible. Herod had his own building projects going on. Um, and so he, he, they probably put this down to the very end uh, of the time available to do it. And it just happens that this is the reason that God uses, I mean, God's timing is just amazing, that he uses them to leave Galilee to go to Bethlehem. And that's where they go. So to get to Bethlehem, though, they're not taking the interstate. They're not taking a plane. They're not taking a, a train or a nice tour bus. They're having to walk the distance of like 85 miles. And don't forget, Mary is mega pregnant at this time. So I remember when um, our first daughter was born, uh, my wife, uh, Denise, and I, we had our first daughter, Heather. Um, Heather was a little late. She didn't want to get born. And so I took um, Denise for a long walk one night. And it was people were telling us, friends and stuff afterwards, were seeing me walk her around blocks and blocks and blocks away from our house uh, and saying, oh, they felt so sorry for this, <laughs> this pregnant lady who was about ready to burst and trying to walk around. But, it, well, it did stimulate the, um, uh, the, the birth process because the next morning she gave birth. But um, Mary is pretty good size and ready to give birth during this thing because she just gets to Bethlehem and gives birth, according to what we read here, according to the Holy Scripture. But they have to take this journey. Now, why Bethlehem? Good question. It comes from a prophecy, again, written hundreds of years before the event took place. The prophet Micah is telling us where the Messiah will be born. And he says, as for you, in Micah 5.2, Bethlehem, Ephraim, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah, from you a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf. Who's speaking here? God, on God's behalf. Now, here's the key thing. One whose origins are in the distant past, or one who is like everlasting, one who's always been there. That's what this is talking about. Well, that's obviously not an ordinary person. This is the Messiah. Thus, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So because of this prophecy, that's why they are they're having to go to Bethlehem. But like I say, the road to Bethlehem, well, there's a couple of different routes you can take. Now, Mary and Joseph are very, very devout Jews. So um, looking at this map of the uh, land of Israel, uh, uh, the time of the New Testament, you can see some roads that are done in gray along here. The blue are showing rivers and stuff. Again, you look up towards to the, the left side of the Sea of Galilee, you will see where Nazareth is. Now, you could, and you can see Bethlehem towards the top part of the Dead Sea, down to the south. You go straight across again to the west, to the left, 
and you'll see Bethlehem. Bethlehem, if you look just a little bit further north, was just six miles from Jerusalem. Short distance, very short distance. And also, you'll see something else just a little bit to the south and, and east of Bethlehem was Herodium. That's a, a palace. Herod had a man-made mountain built and had a palace up there, and that was one of his palaces, was right there. And it's just outside of Bethlehem. You can see it beautifully from Bethlehem. But anyway, Bethlehem is in this area. So now, if you were to go straight, just take, you know, the shortest distance between two, two spots or a straight line, and just draw a straight line going south, you can see there is a road that goes down from Nazareth straight down to Jerusalem. They probably would not have taken that route because that would take them through the Samaritan country. Being devout Jews, they did not, they did, they despised Samaritans. And so they wouldn't touch anything with Samaritans. They wouldn't be able to eat at Samaritan places and stuff, uh, walking through the country. It's, it's a hardship on, on some that they self-inflicted because God never despised them. It was a Jewish tradition that started. But anyway, they probably did not take that route. Most scholars believe they probably took the route that goes along the sea or the, um, along the Jordan River. So going to the east, Sea of Galilee, you'll notice it connects by a river to the Dead Sea. That is the Jordan River. The Jordan River is a valley area and it has fresh water. If you're going to travel, now this is 85 miles with a pregnant lady, you're not moving too fast. And so you're going to need water. Um, you can only go a couple of days without water and they're having to get water. Well, the fresh water right there in the Jordan River would be available for them, so they would have that aspect. So most scholars believe this is, and most theologians believe, they took the Jordan Valley River because that was the one that the Jews primarily used. And so they would be coming there. Now, what does this look like? What is this journey going to be like to get down 85 miles to Bethlehem? Here is part of the road going from Nazareth or from the Sea of Galilee down to Bethlehem. That's the kind of area that they're crossing, that they're walking down. It is mountainous in some areas, particularly as you get further to the south. It's very, very mountainous. It's very dry in some places. Along the river now, there's going to be growth and, and greenery and stuff, but a lot of times, it because uh, the river meanders and stuff, you go off to the side, so it, it looks like this. And as you keep going, um, you can take trips and stuff around Bethlehem even today. This is um, showing a picture of the area. Just This is just outside of of Bethlehem and it's showing like one of the ancient road areas that we would take to go over towards Bethlehem. So traveling along through there, um, this type of thing. Now we are never told in scripture if there was a donkey. We don't know if there was a donkey. Um, I know there's a nice Christmas special called Nestor, um, but uh, if you know about that one, the, the Christmas donkey that Mary rode, there's no mention of this. We don't know for sure. We just know they're very poor. To have a donkey and stuff, that costs money. So we don't know. Um, and, and I mean, maybe they did, but um, just showing you, I'm showing you the, this picture here to give you an idea of what some of the travel was like, particularly when you leave the road and start moving inland um, closer to Bethlehem, it gets very, very rough. Here, this picture here is taken very close outside of Bethlehem. You can see a road here. And so this, like, this is probably what it looked like in ancient times. This is what they were traveling down, is something like this. And um, there's a dried up river wadi, um, riverbed along there. You can see a little bit of greenery, but just traveling along through these areas to go to Bethlehem. Now, when they, so there's your journey. That's no McDonald's along the way, no Happy Meals. You know, you, it's not the easiest journey. But now they come to Bethlehem. Bethlehem at the time of Jesus's birth was not a major metropolis. It was a small little village. And it might've only been a small village of a couple of hundred people. Again. Nazareth was small, Bethlehem is small. It might have looked something like this. This is a town very close to Bethlehem. Um, you can see a little village here. It might have been something about this size. I'm just showing you this picture. And in this picture, again, you can see the uh, Judean wilderness to the, uh, to the background there. And if you look really carefully, you'll see the Dead Sea uh, right about going just above center all the way across this, this bluish hue through there. That's the Dead Sea. So coming from that area to come over to Bethlehem, this would have been maybe about the size of the city of Bethlehem. It would not have been very large. And it only had probably one inn, so there's not a lot of room there. But this is what they would have been coming into. As you get into Bethlehem, this is on the outskirts of the modern city of Bethlehem. Gives you an idea, too, what this place looked like. Bethlehem was really uh, well known for two things outside of being the birthplace of King David. It was known for the grain fields around there, Boaz's field. Remember the story of Ruth? 
in Boaz. Boaz had grain fields, so wheat and barley being grown around there. And also it was a place for sheep. There's a few olive trees there. You can see some walls and even a few towers uh, dating back into ancient times, some of these. But let me show you what Bethlehem today looks like. This is a Google map, uh, aerial shot, looking down a satellite view of modern Bethlehem. It's huge. It's gigantic and it's expanding. Uh, every year it gets a little bigger. And um, just a little bit north of this picture is where Jerusalem is. They're almost connecting to a degree now. Because like I say, ancient Bethlehem was only six miles from, from uh, Jerusalem, from the temple area. So the space here was really small. And these cities are today are just expanding. And it's a modern city. It's in, um, it, it, and if you look in the center of this, you'll see a little bit just off to the right of center, you'll see a little blue cross and it says the church and nativity. That's where most scholars believe the birth actually took place. So it sat in there, but now you can see the city has just expanded all the way around. But that's what it looks like today. And if you go there, it's, it's quite a large city. But as I said, Bethlehem was important for a couple of things. One, the name itself tells us what it was all about. Beit Lehem, Beit or Beth, as we would say in English, means house of, the house of. Lehem is the word for bread, the house of bread. Why was Bethlehem called the house of bread? had to do because the grain that was grown there was used for the sacrifices and the feast offerings and others that, for worship at the temple. A lot of people lived in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. There was people would come in and they had to have grain. The grain was grown just, just a couple of miles away from the temple. Around Bethlehem, they would, uh, they would harvest this grain, they would store it, and they would use it at the temple. So it was a place for that. Uh, for the temple sacrifices. So Bethlehem was important for that. Also, Herod's temple, to come into the temple to worship God, you had to bring sheep and you would sacrifice sheep. To come into the presence of God, blood had to be shed because we're sinful and we have to have um, a blood sacrifice to come to the presence of God. So we have this. Um, this is a model there in Jerusalem today at the Israel Museum, giving you an idea roughly of what some artist thinks the temple looked like but they needed sheep and they would be sacrificing lots and lots of sheep there. So where'd the sheep come from? Well, remember David was a shepherd? Bethlehem, Bethlehem is a place. And even today, at times, you can go around on the outskirts of Bethlehem and still see uh, shepherds with um, flocks of sheep all around in the area. Matter of fact, here's a picture of a sheep pen. This isn't very far from Bethlehem. Here's an ancient uh, sheep pen. I don't know how old it is or anything, but this is what they were like. They would take stones, put them up, make walls, and notice it only has one opening. And this is where the shepherd would spend time uh, in protecting his sheep. So this is the sheep pen. Um, and there's, these are all around in the areas um, where, where they have sheep. You can see these uh, sheep pens all around. And some still in use today um, like that. So anyway, the area around Bethlehem now, are you ready? There's caves everywhere, caves and crevices. This is just a, about a mile or so outside of Bethlehem, this little rocky scrag area of modern Bethlehem. But if you look over to the left side of the picture, you can see there's like little cliffs and stuff, and there's even little crevices and caves. Here's where people would live. You're gonna come down, this is where you live. You have a much better place of, of uh, shelter and stuff by living in caves. So Bethlehem has a lot of caves. They had a lot of sheep, they would keep the sheep. And uh, in, in cold weather, they'd bring them inside of caves and stuff too, and they would use them as stables. And that's where we get this whole thing with the stable. So we would have, Bethlehem was just a small little place with um, maybe a few walls around, a few trees, but it was mostly for grain and also for sheep that they used this. Now, where was Jesus born in Bethlehem? This is where it gets really interesting. Back in ancient times, people didn't celebrate birthdays. Um, birthdays were not something that was celebrated until more modern times. So people didn't really spend a lot of time uh, wrapping presents and stuff. But it is most likely that the early Christians would have asked Mary, hey, could you just tell us where you were when, when Jesus was born? So there was probably some oral tradition going around like that. We don't know. Nothing's been for sure written down on this. Um, but chances are Mary definitely would have remembered. I mean, any ladies who are sitting out there um, who have given birth, you probably remember, even if you're 60 or 70 years old, you probably still remember where you gave birth to your firstborn. Mary would certainly remember that. And particularly being in a cave in a stable and not in a real house, but in the stable area of a cave. So she would recall that. 
chances are she probably showed that to some people or talked about it at times. But the Romans eventually took a great interest to this when they started finding Christianity growing in their empire. And so we do know that Hadrian, when he became emperor, he wanted to know the exact birthplace of Jesus. He also wanted to know where Jesus was crucified and where his tomb was. Why would Hadrian, this Roman emperor, want to know all this? Well, it's very simple. He hated the Jews. He did not like the Christians. And so he wanted to desecrate these holy places. And so he ordered where Jesus was crucified, he ordered a temple um, built there um, over the site of the crucifixion and over the site of uh, the tomb, a temple to Venus, where the temple itself sat, uh, Herod's temple. He, um, they had that taken down and they built a Roman temple, temple to Jupiter there. But in Bethlehem, he ordered a temple built to the god, the idol, Adonis, over the birthplace of Jesus. Thus, now the Romans kept very good records. I mean, to this day, we still have excellent Roman records, historical records and stuff. Apparently, the Romans in investigating found where they believed that uh, this place was, where the, the birthplace of Jesus was. And to desecrate it, they ordered a temple to an idol built over the top of it. And it sat there for a couple hundred years until Constantine comes to power and becomes a Christian. And that's around 325 AD. His mother, Helena, becomes Christian. She, even though she's well up in age, she travels to the Holy Land. And at the Holy Land, she orders these temples, like the one over the tomb and the crucifixion site, uh, the one that's over the birthplace of Jesus. She ordered these, these temples uh, dismantled, and she builds churches over it. Now, she built a church over this spot. So she went by the Roman records to this temple, according to the Roman records, uh, from their investigations and stuff, and probably also from the early church Christians who were talking about this at the time, because this is during Emperor Hadrian. This would be about 100 years after the, after the resurrection that this is all built. And so Hadrian orders this thing built. Well, she has the records, being she's Roman too. So she orders this place uh, destroyed and builds a church over it. Now, this is the entrance to the church, the church of the nativity. Isn't that a grand entrance? <laughs> a lot of people saying, that's the entrance to a church? Yeah, it's only about four feet high. To go in here, you've got to crouch down to go in. But if you'll notice in the background, above the doorway, there's an arch. That arch goes back to the Crusader period. So at one time, this, this opening was much, much larger. And there's different theories of why it's closed in like that. Some say it was done by the Crusaders to keep horses, because horses used to go inside this church. Others say uh, that they sealed it up and they made a smaller opening. Um, some church denominations say that, and they call this the, the gate of humility, that you have to bow to the birthplace of the King of Kings to come inside. And so you got to bow down. You literally do have to crouch down to get inside here, unless you're a small child. And once you go through here, there's a little vestibule, and then there's another big wooden door. You go through the wooden door, and you go down this long corridor. Now, Helena ordered this church built, and it ends up being uh, built in the shape of a cross. Um, a long corridor, like the stipe of the cross, the stem part of the cross, and then it had two projections coming out on the edge, which were smaller. Um, to this day, it has this type of a shape. But as you walk down inside of here, some of the, uh, uh, the original mosaic floors are still there. Do you know this is one of the oldest functioning churches in the world? This goes back. This congregation and stuff started in the 300s, and it's still a functioning church today. There's four different denominations that use this one church. And let me tell you, that causes trouble. <laughs> People who can't agree on the color of an orange are constantly getting into fights and stuff inside the church, the monks and the priests and stuff. Sometimes they have to call the police to, to settle it all out. It's 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 Crazy the way this is set up. Most of the arguments are about who's, air, who's supposed to clean that area. But anyway, I'm digressing here. Underneath, as they, they've been restoring this church now, it's been through earthquakes. It's had a couple of fires, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the original mosaic floor here, you can still see it. And it's absolutely beautiful. And as you walk down, there's large columns. As you walk down this corridor, as you come through here, and these columns have paintings on them of different biblical characters and stuff, and beautiful artwork. These, these are original columns as you go down through here. And up above them, there's, there's mosaics in gold. It's beautiful. 
uh, the big wooden rafters up at the ceiling and stuff. It's a big, huge church that is still functioning. But when you keep walking, you come to the end, and this is the spot. Now, as you get to the end, you'll notice this little clearing here. And this is a very holy place uh, for many denominations. This floor is not original. This was actually a, a depression here, and at the bottom of the depression was a cave. Helena had this built so that you could stand here and look down into this cave. And um, uh, Justin, who, who came later as an emperor, he actually uh, remodeled the church and made it a little bigger and a little nicer. And so he too, he wanted to have this, this that you could see inside there. So people could come into the church, walk up and look down and see the actual cave where uh, was a shepherd's cave, or uh, obviously because it had uh, obviously animals, because there was mangers in it, and that this is the spot that they believe. And tradition says that this was the birthplace of Jesus. Now, again, Jesus, when he was born, didn't take a piece of stone and chip onto the wall. Jesus was born here. You know, he didn't do that. We don't know 100% certain, but the historical records and stuff do indicate very strongly that this is the place. But anyway, as you look at this floor, this floor here that you see um, in this photograph is, is all added later, much later. A beautiful floor and to preserve the cave underneath. It's got some great history. If you want to Google the Church of the Nativity and the history of like with the Muslim wars and stuff, there are some fantastic stories. I don't have time to go into this. Maybe we will in a lesson on Bethlehem some other time, but it's fascinating because they were going to destroy, Muslims were going to destroy this church until they went down below and they'd st started firing uh, fires in the church to destroy the whole thing. And they came across down below a mural of um, wise men coming to visit baby Jesus and they were dressed in Persian outfits and they thought, oh, Persian, that's our country. And they ordered the, the temple or the, the church not destroyed then. And that's what's helped it survive. But it's fascinating. Down below, it's called the Grotto, and there's a lot of history, a lot of things that took place there. St. Jerome uh, translated the Bible into Latin, uh, supposedly, in uh, one of these caves that's down there. He wanted to be close to the birthplace of Christ, so he went down there um, around 300 AD to do this, and um, a lot of things. But if you go over to the right from where this picture is, and if you go down, there's a stairway. You have to, it's single file, it's a small little doorway, and you go down a set of steps. When you get to the bottom, it opens up into a small little area, and then you see this on your right. And it's a little silver star, and they say that this is the birthplace of Jesus. Right. Um, we don't know that. Um, it's as good a place as anything else in there, so uh, okay, we'll call it that. And that's pretty much what it is. But people are allowed to come, and you can uh, put your hand there, you can put your hand down inside, and People, I've seen people just weeping, uh, huge tears, um, being able to come there and kiss the, the silver star and stuff. But they say that this is the Jesus birth spot. We don't know for sure. Somewhere in that cave, yes. But now you turn around and you take a few steps the other direction and you come to this. Now, this is fascinating. It just looks like some pieces of marble that definitely are not natural there. They've been man-made and put in there. And you can see this like golden cage there, and there's a little manger set behind it. And uh, there's some oil lamps and stuff uh, from one of the churches being represented in there. And the thing is, this is a manger. Now, it doesn't look like a manger. We always picture in our crashes for Christmas time, mangers made out of wood. In Israel, most of the mangers were made out of stone, carved stone. Um, so what happened? How did that idea of this thing become a manger? Well, archaeologists many years ago were allowed to take the marble out to see what is underneath there. And sure enough, there was a manger. There is a stone manger carved in there. So it is a manger. So this is very likely the place where Jesus was laid when he was wrapped in swaddling cloths, which was normal for babies. They would, do, um, they would wrap the babies in cloth and then set it in the manger. Um, or they would put it in their bed or just to hold it. Because the baby, when it's born, before it's born, it's all tight and everything. And then when it comes uh, after birth, it's, everything's opened up. So they found that by wrapping babies very tightly in just cloths, um, it got them to calm down. Um, I don't know why we don't do that to this day. Today we have the baby and pick it up, slap its butt or whatever. And the thing is, it's screaming bloody murder. I mean, just, ah, what's going on? What happened? You know, there's bright light everywhere before it was all dark. 
and babies are in some distress sometimes, but when they wrap them really tight and hold them close, they calm down. So that's what they used to do in these days too. But this is a manger that's down there. There's a lot of other things that are down there in this grotto that's beautiful. But there is a sad part to this Christmas story that you find in the book of, of Matthew. Remember the wise men, the Magi, came from the east and they questioned Herod, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Because they sort of expected the king of the Jews, the king of kings, to be born in the palace. Well, Herod called himself, his self-proclaimed title was the king of the Jews. He also called himself the king of kings. So when these Magi come, and who are pretty smart guys, and say, where is he who's born king of the Jews, the king of kings? Herod's a little, you know how the story goes, he's upset. He tricks the Magi saying, go find him. Uh, when they find out it's Bethlehem, go search for the child. When you find him, give me the news, now come and worship him. He wanted to murder the kid. He wanted to murder the baby Jesus because he didn't want his dynasty to end. And so um, as that story goes. Now, there's no recorded evidence outside of the Bible in biblical sources that Herod murdered a bunch of uh, children. Well, first of all, let's just take a look at this. Bethlehem, if you'll recall, was a very, very small village. And the age, the, by the Greek, the wording in Greek that the wise men were looking for and found was a toddler, not an infant. So it's, it's, Jesus has already been born. Also, it says that Jesus was living in the house, um, and Joseph and Mary's, they had a house. They weren't in the stable. So this actually takes place a little later that the wise men come, and they're talking about a toddler that they see. And the thing is, as they, um, they find him, they, they worship him, and then they leave. Instead of going back and telling Herod, Herod becomes upset, and he wants the, the babies killed. There's no record of Herod doing this in Roman records and stuff. And some people find that alarming. Personally, I don't. Killing maybe, because it's a small village, killing maybe uh, 8 to 12 babies uh, or toddlers, that wouldn't be anything to Herod. That wouldn't be newsworthy. That wouldn't make local news. Herod's used to killing all sorts of adults by the thousands. Uh, he kills his own wife, kills his father-in-law. He killed many people. He was a bloodthirsty, cruel person. So killing lots of people would make news. Just killing a couple of uh, toddlers in a small little obscure village, that wouldn't be newsworthy. And so it, it makes sense it's not recorded outside of biblical sources. But in this grotto, you can see this little spot. It's a little cave off to the side, and you'll notice these niches in the back. Now, if you look carefully at the photograph, you're going to see, particularly on the left niche, you're going to see there's grooves cut. They appear to be tombs where these uh, slots are about so long, and you can easily see that a toddler could be wrapped and buried there. And there's many of them going back. So there's a bunch of these that are there. And so some say that this is the burial spot of Herod's anger uh, against the toddlers and trying to kill the baby Jesus. But um, there's a little altar that's there. Church services take place in there too, and they mourn for these children and stuff. But it's, that's also down there. And there's other things. There's the cave that St. Jerome was in, they believe, where he uh, wrote the, the Bible into Latin. Uh, there's a lot of things down in the grottos, and a lot of church services take place down there. I love to go down there because Steve Notley, who I, I lead trips with and I go with to Israel, when we come down there, sometimes he will just, everything's quiet. We've taught lessons, and he's told us all about this. And then he starts to sing. Uh, and leads us in, O come all ye faithful. And it just echoes through there. It's, I get goosebumps every time that happens. It's so cool. Uh, this grotto just goes on and on um, with different rooms and stuff. But going back, Bethlehem had the shepherds. That's part of the Christmas story too, the shepherds. And you can see in this picture again, this is modern Bethlehem up towards the top, but there's a field over on the side. That's one that they often call the shepherd's field. Uh, you can take a tour guide and go over there or something like that. But it's just an empty field. But there are still sheep walking around and stuff. But anyway, this, uh, the shepherds have a role in this. Now, why did God, let me ask you a couple of questions here. Why did God choose Nazareth as his home? Because after the birth and everything, they go to Egypt and they come back and they live in Nazareth. But why did Mary and Joseph, why were they from Nazareth? Why did this whole Nazareth thing get going? And why did God use Bethlehem? You see, God could have picked of any cities, any villages, anywhere in Israel. He could have done this, but he, he chose Nazareth and Bethlehem. Why those two seemingly insignificant, dinky little towns that hardly anybody lived in? And they were living in many cases just in caves and stuff. Why there? 
It's because God has a tendency of using the seemingly insignificant for his glory and his purpose. There's a lesson here for you. If someone ever tries to give you the impression, or if you start to get the impression that you're a nobody, that you're not important, you're insignificant, you'll never amount to anything, you're just wasted cells, you're not worth anything, that is so wrong. Because God uses the insignificant. If he can use Bethlehem and Nazareth in his grand plan and give them such honor and glory for him, he can do the same with you. He can use you for his glory, for his purpose. What's holding you back? And don't let anybody ever tell you you're worthless, that you have no meaning in life, that I never wish I had you, kid, or I never wish I married you, you're nothing. Don't let anybody ever tell you that because God loves you so much that he sent his own son to die for you. And he has a plan for you, just like he did for Nazareth, just like he did for Bethlehem. He uses the seemingly, to most people, insignificant to bring great glory to himself to fulfill his purpose. He can do the same with you. And the last thing I want to ask you this, why did God use shepherds? Why did he have the shepherds announce the birth? The angels didn't appear to the king. You'd think they would have appeared to King Herod. Wouldn't that have changed him, maybe? Having angels come, 10,000 angels saying the Messiah is born and, and showing him you know, their glory and stuff? Or why didn't he go to the priests at the temple? Why didn't he have the angels go there and say, hey, the Messiah is born? Why in the world would God pick shepherds to be the ones, the recipients of the greatest news in all the world? You ever wonder about that? Let me tell you one of the reasons for that. It's really interesting. You see, in Old Testament times, you go back to the book of Genesis and you start reading, just focus on shepherds. A little Bible study to do sometime. Focus on the shepherds mentioned in the Bible. And in the Old Testament in particular, you're going to see something. The shepherds were rich. The shepherds were the respectable people. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac, a shepherd. Jacob, a shepherd. Nabal, a shepherd. He was even a bad guy. Thing is, they were all rich. They didn't live in the cities. The shepherds were out in the fields. They were out with the sheep and stuff. That's where the rich and the respectable people lived, out there. But by the time of the New Testament, in the span between the Old Testament and New, in less than a thousand years, has totally changed. The rich and the powerful stopped living out in the fields and stopped becoming shepherds. They became businessmen and they lived in cities. So the rich and really powerful people, the respectable people, were in the cities. So what happened to the shepherds? The shepherds were the social outcasts. They were thought to be the lowest of society. They ranked, by some ancient Jewish prayers and writings, shepherds ranked down with prostitutes, robbers, and thieves. Matter of fact, there's an old prayer that, that Jews used to pray uh, when they find out, found out that they were expecting, that they would pray that their child not be a shepherd, not be a prostitute, not be a thief, but a shepherd. You see how it changed? You understand what's going on here? So who does God give the greatest announcement of all mankind, the most historic announcement ever? Who does he give it to? To deliver to the world? Shepherds. God was announcing the Messiah was coming, not, not just for the rich, not for the respectable, not for the, the social elite. He's also coming for the lowest of the low, the lowest, the robbers, the thieves, the prostitutes to give them salvation. Isn't that amazing? If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, doesn't that sound like God? Well, I want to thank you for joining me on this, this little Christmas special that we've had here, the journey to Christmas. You got to see some of the places. And if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, uh, it's a fantastic opportunity for you. I, I, I encourage you to go or plan on coming with us. We're hoping to go in January of 2023. 
And um, you can go to our website and find information on this. And I will take you to Nazareth and I'll take you down the Jordan Valley and we'll take you over to Bethlehem and, and uh, let you see these things firsthand. And maybe even sing down in the grotto, if it's open when we get there, that you can sing some praise songs like, Oh, come all ye faithful. Maybe it'll have an influence on you like it did on me. It's fantastic. But thank you so much for joining. And um, again, I encourage you to, to look at other things on our website. Um, we'd love to hear from you, uh, prayer requests or any comments or questions. We, we would love to hear it. So please uh, take a moment and pray for us. We, we encourage your prayers as our ministry is still just new and starting to grow. We're looking uh, for prayer partners. We're also looking for people who will support us and help us uh, so we can expand this ministry and do a lot more with it in the glory of God and in Jesus Christ, his son, to get the good news, the gospel out there. So until I see you again, take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.